Hello, Social Chemist listeners and MSW students that are listening to this podcast for an academic assignment. One of the main things that we address on this podcast is the social problem of misinformation. Now, misinformation is an umbrella term, and a lot of things fall into misinformation, like parody, fake news, and conspiracy theories, which is what I mostly cover in my program. Another form of misinformation is pseudoscience, which is closely related to conspiracy theories. For those who remember, last summer I interviewed a 5G protection salesman, and much of his claims relied on conspiracy theories, while his product, in my opinion, was built on pseudoscientific claims. For this reason, on this episode, I'm going to be speaking to a distinguished research professor about pseudoscience and its negative implications within social work and mental health practice, a topic I know a few in my audience will find very intriguing. Before I start, I know that some listeners are here because of an assignment, and as an MSW student myself, I know how tedious it can be to cite empirical journals, so I took the initiative to provide the citations on the show notes below so you wouldn't have to. As we say here in the beautiful state of New Jersey, don't worry, I got you. So with that being said, let's dive in. Hello, listeners. Welcome to another episode of the Social Chemist Podcast. I'm your host, Nelson, and today I am joined by Bruce Dyer, a distinguished researcher professor in social work from Florida State University. Bruce has covered a variety of topics in the social sciences, but on today's episode, we discuss his challenge of pseudoscience within social work and the article he wrote on this very topic, The Problem of Pseudoscience in Social Work Continuing Education. Bruce, thank you for coming. You're very welcome, Nelson. Thanks for inviting me. No problem. Um, Bruce, I just want to say that it is, I'm very thrilled for today's conversation. Um, the last few people that I've had on were, you know, a business uh, professor, a librarian. And like I said, before we started recording, I feel like there isn't that many people in the social work realm that, that study what we study. And so I feel like the conversation that we're going to have today is going to be very informative and very engaging. And so that being said, uh, I wanted to start with your academic history. Now, I know that you earned your PhD, I believe, if I remember correctly, in like 1978, around that time. And so my question for you is, since you got your degree, how much has the profession of social work changed? Or has it changed? Well, I think it's changed in a good many ways that are very positive. Um, looking at the larger landscape, the uh, implementation of relatively strong licensure laws in all the states is a positive development. We are a very well-established mental health profession. We do more psychotherapy than psychologists and psychiatrists combined across the United States. We have good reimbursement from insurance companies. 
recognized by the federal government with their TRICARE reimbursement and also with um, Medicaid um, and Medicare, rather. We've got a strong code of ethics. We've got a number of big professional organizations. We have a good journal landscape, lots of professional journals out there. Um, And the profession is paying much more attention to what could be called the value of empirical research and informing the assessment methods we do and the interventions that we develop. So I think those have been some positive developments. It's been uneven in many ways, and that is in part um, why you invited me here to talk about some of the ways in which we haven't made much progress and Mm. we're just sort of continuing on with what could be generously called uh, pseudoscientific approaches to practice. Uh, Less generally, they could be called bogus or simply quackery. Going back to your your early days as a social work, what was it like being a social work during that time, during like the 80s? Well, for me, it was just great. I had some wonderful training opportunities uh, in behavior therapy, uh, interventions that worked really well. And I developed a focus in um, treating people with anxiety disorders. And in 1985, I got my LCSW from Georgia and later on got it here in the state of Florida. I'm currently licensed in both states. And nice. I'm a supervisor for social workers. Um, so I had uh, five years of experience working in a specialty anxiety disorders program associated with University of Michigan and was extremely busy doing group and individual therapy with people with a wide variety of uh, anxiety disorders, agoraphobia, OCD, specific and social phobias, PTSD, GAD, things like that. Mm. What theories did you implement? Because um from my understanding, when I took my clinical um, courses, we were told that the foundation of what we were learning was heading more to neuroscience. During your time, during the 80s, what theories were more prominent? What was the, the explanation for certain like um, anxiety disorders? Like the explanation like was my question part is like, were you guys using like psychodynamic theory to help um, individuals with like anxiety disorders and OCD? Um, Many people were. I was not. Um, Mm. From a relatively early on in my career, I became interested in social learning theory, which is an amalgamation of of operant learning, respondent conditioning, and observational learning. And um, that's almost what I exclusively use. And um, a derivative of that, of course, is cognitive behavior therapy, which is the single most popular approach to treatment that there is. Was um the the models that were that you were using were they common at the time? Did you find yourself that you were the only one using um, um operant conditioning and stuff like that? Or not not the only one. There's always been a large group of people using learning mm-hmm. theories in their therapy, um, mm-hmm. but certainly it was a a minority uh, approach, mm-hmm. and in particular the approach that I have used with helping people with anxiety disorders, which is gradual real life exposure therapy works exceptionally well, lots of strong research support behind it. But it seems like a lot of social workers are intimidated with the idea of doing a therapy that actually uh, induces anxiety in their clients through gradual exposure. And that's a shame because it's a very effective treatment and Mm -hmm. it's capable of helping people um, rather dramatically in a relatively short period of time. Mm, Yeah. What was the the dominant um, treatment? Because you said that the models that you... Talking in an office. (laughs) <laughs> oh. I mean, oh, all right. That's interesting. What do you mean by that? Talking enough as social workers, don't we do that as well? 
Well, of course we do. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what I meant. Uh, most social workers saw people in office and they talked and they typically followed an amalgamation of different approaches, influenced maybe of some by psychodynamic theory, uh, Rogerian mm-hmm. principles, um, the functionalist school, um, lots of different approaches. And um, they all pretty much had the same modest, weak effects at genuinely helping people. Mm. Okay, I see. Yeah, because that's how I feel like a lot of professors talk about, you know, social work during, I guess, like the 60s, 70s, where it was more dominated by psychodynamic theory than it is by more of the more uh, accepted or scientifically based, like, uh, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy. And I think there's dialectic behavioral therapy. I don't know if I'm, if I'm saying that one accurately. So there's there's many what I would call research supported treatments available out there. Mm-hmm. And simply talking to somebody in office is is not listed among them for most conditions. You're not going to mm-hmm. help somebody with a chronic mental illness like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder mm-hmm. just by chatting with them in an office. You're not going to help somebody overcome a severe uh, inability to leave their home in the case of agoraphobia or compulsively washing their hands many, many times a day that interferes with their life functioning. Just chatting with people about that is not particularly beneficial. They may feel a sense of support. They may feel Mm -hmm. better understood. um, But in terms of reducing hand washing, going out and functioning in the real world, in the case of agoraphobia, uh, giving speeches in the case of public speaking fears, uh, talking in an office is of very little value. Mm, Yeah, no, that's a a great perspective because I definitely agree with that. I feel like when people talk about mental illness from a, or mental disorders from a general perspective, they focus on the conversation aspect of it, but never take into consideration, you know, how to effectively treat it. Which brings us to the theme of our discussion about pseudoscience, because a lot of pseudoscience often villainizes antipsychotic medications and mainstream practices. And so as a, as a uh, researcher in, in pseudoscience, could you help define what pseudoscience is? Well, um, I'm looking at a quote in one of my articles, and it's referred to as a body of beliefs and practices whose practitioners wish naively or maliciously pass for science, although it's alien to the approach and the techniques and the fund of knowledge of science. In other words, it uses the language of science in a inaccurate manner to acquire the prestige, the status, the reputation of doing something scientific, although the actual mechanism of action that they're proposing is is fake and the therapeutic benefits of what they do are not anywhere near as great as they pretend it is. What got you into studying or looking into pseudoscience? Because it's not something that... uh like same thing as conspiracy theories it's not a an area that i see social workers investigate how did you find this appealing well like most clinical social workers i am motivated by a desire to be of genuine help to the clients that i see to make a difference so that when they come to see me in individual treatment when they finish up they're a whole lot better off and a lot of treatments pretend to do that but they really don't. And I became frustrated with, even in my MSW program, uh, at the time, our theory book, 
theories of social casework. It had like seven theories in it. That was it. Right now, our social work theory books have like 35 or 36 theories in it. And every week or two, the professor would give us a lecture on one of these approaches. And I was the guy standing in the back or sitting in the back at the end. And I'd raise my hand and I would say, Dr. So-and-so, has this particular approach been shown through scientific and rigorous studies to really help people? And he would suck his teeth or stroke his beard and say, not that I know of which sort of left hanging in the whole class. Why the hell did you make us learn this stuff? If there's no good evidence that it really helps people, why aren't we learning about things that really do? And that continues on to this day. Students are taught in social work programs, their theories and models class, their practice methods class, um, about things that have no legitimacy at all in a scientific sense, have very little evidence that they're helpful to people. And because I am concerned about wanting to promote methods that really do help people, that has helped me and moved me in the direction of being interested in pseudoscience and trying to discourage it within the field. You know, Nelson, you've probably heard of the term evidence-based practice. Mm -hmm. um, I view evidence-based practice as having two approaches. Positive evidence-based practice is working to promote interventions and assess the methods that are strongly supported by good quality scientific research. Negative evidence-based practice is trying to expose and or reduce methods of assessment and practice, which either have not been sufficiently investigated at all, or have been investigated and shown not to work. So you're talking to me today about what I would call negative evidence-based practice, mm -hmm. reducing the influence of pseudoscientific methods, but I'm also very keenly interested in positive evidence-based practice promoting things that research has really shown to benefit clients. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, uh, and I definitely agree with you. It is important that we serve our our clients in the most effective way and not waste our time because again, many of the clients here that we will, you know, that you have um, met with and that I will meet with, you know, will spend a good chunk of their, you know, money meeting with us and I think it's important that we give them their money's worth and to help find or find, I guess, yeah, find solutions to their problems or help, at least help mitigate it. And so why do you think that among the social work disciplines that pseudoscience is so attractive? Because um, I also faced this issue. So a couple of weeks ago, um, I was in my clinical class, it's clinical and health, and we talk about different types of um, physical ailments. I'm running a paper on diabetes currently. And one of the topics that we were discussing was cancer. And at a certain point, we were talking about alternative treatments. And I remember looking at that and looking at the slide because it was under um, homeopathy. And I already... <laughs> I can already see your, your face. And I I have my issues with homeopathy because um again it's not evidence-based. And I wanted to ask the professor if she thought that this was evidence-based, but as she was talking, my other classmates were like supportive of, of this method. And so by the time she like looked at me and pointed, I wasn't going to ask whether she thought homeopathy was evidence-based. I just wanted her to explain it to me or to define it. And she just said, oh, it's just an alternative way of treatment. And looking back at it, I kind of regret not challenging her because when the class ended, 
all my classmates left the, you know, the lecture thinking that homeopathy was an acceptable way of treating clients. And so again, like, you know, what makes pseudoscience so, or homeopathy so attractive within social work? Well, you, you put your self in a perfect illustration of the kind of thing that irritates the hell out of me because homeopathy is the epitome of a pseudoscience and you can approach challenging without seeming challenging for example you could have asked your professor could you explain to us the theory behind homeopathy that's a legitimate question for an inquiry student to ask and a university like rutgers which is centered on discovering truthful knowledge it's a very reasonable thing for people to want to know. If she knew anything about the theory of homeopathy, which I'd be willing to bet she doesn't, she would tell you that homeopathy was created 200 years ago by a, a German physician named Hahnemann, and he came up with what he called the law of similars, that he thought that if you gave people a tiny little amount of something that mimics the symptoms of what they're ill with, that the tiny amount will counteract it. So if you have a fever, he thought you could give somebody a tiny amount of something that normally causes a fever and that this would make them get well. And an example would be another one would be if somebody has an upset stomach, if you gave them something that would a tiny, tiny little amount that would make them throw up, this would help cure their stomach ache. And the way they make their medicine is they take a tiny little amount of some substance that makes you get a fever or makes you throw up. And they put it in a liter of distilled water. And I'm not making this up. This is the theory of homeopathy. Mm -hmm. And they shake it up really well. Then they take one drop of that dilute solution and put it in another liter of distilled water, shake that up really well, then take another drop of that and continue this process 8, 10, 12 times to the point the final liter of water mathematically, it can be shown, cannot possibly have a single molecule of the original substance in it. Then they take that highly diluted bottle of water and put it on sugar pills, one drop. Mm -hmm. And that's what they market as homeopathic medicine. We're not talking dietary supplements or anything like that. We're talking real mm -hmm. homeopathy. And because there's no mathematical way there could be a single molecule, homeopath believes that a vibration from the original substance permeates the water. And it gets stronger and stronger the more and more it gets diluted. This is just pseudoscientific crap. And the way we know this is the multitude of studies that have looked at homeopathic remedies and tested mm -hmm. them comparing real homeopathic pills against placebo pills. And they show no difference. I have a great demonstration in class. I did this one time in Germany uh, where homeopathy is very popular. I went to a a homeopathic pharmacy, and I got a bottle of homeopathic sleeping pills and a bottle of homeopathic energy pills designed either to help you go to sleep or to perk you up if you're tired. And I asked for student volunteers to randomly take one of these pills, not knowing which bottle it came from. And before they took the pill, to record how tired they felt on a scale of zero to 10. So half the students got a sleeping pill. I did it on the basis of a coin toss. Half of them got an energy, so-called energy pill. They recorded how tired they felt. And then a couple hours later, at the end of class, I asked them to record how tired they felt. Then I broke the code. And I was able to show that the tiredness levels between the people who got the sleeping pill and the energy pill were no different at all. 
And then I cap off the demonstration by pouring about 20 homeopathic sleeping pills in my pant, in my hand and swallowing them all. Now, real medicine like amp, you'd be out like a light. You'd probably sleep for a long time if you didn't die. With homeopathic <laughs> pills, I know there's nothing in them. So you can take an unlimited amount of homeopathic medicine. And it's not going to hurt you in every way if it's made from genuine homeopathic principles. This is just a prototype pseudoscience. And why? We like simple solutions. And it's been around for a couple hundred years. People think, mm -hmm. oh, there's a tradition. A very few states license homeopaths. Most of them don't do that, thank God. Mm -hmm. And they think that, oh, this means it's official or endorsed. Um, there's no homeopathic medicine. It's ever been approved by the FDA. And if it was helpful, it would be approved. There's no conspiracy to suppress homeopathic medicine beyond the fact that <laughs> there's a conspiracy to want to promote things that really do work and to suppress things that don't. So whenever there's a quack therapy out there, often the FDA will take effect. But because homeopaths are very careful not to say their medicines will cure particular diseases, they escape FDA supervision. Mm -hmm. Do you think that? Do you think that's why pseudoscience and homeopathy is adopted by some of the MSW programs and in, in the nation? Because it's just it's just simple. Like because a lot of my classmates endorse homeopathy, and I'm always curious to know why, like, what is your guess? Well, it's a very powerful placebo. And if you have a friend who is convinced that homeopathic medicines help him or her sleep, for example, mm -hmm. you could ask them to do the following, buy two bottles of pills. One's homeopathic sleeping pills, one's homeopathic energy pills. Have their partner um, cover up the labels and then randomly assign them to get one pill one night, toss a coin and do this over a few weeks and record how well they sleep the following morning mm -hmm. after getting each of the different types of pills, then break the code and see if they, if they slept better during the real homeopathic pill versus the energy mm -hmm. pill or the placebo pill. I promise you, Nelson, there will be no difference. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with that. There, there will be none. Kind of reminds me of this. Uh, I once interviewed a, um, a 5g necklace um salesperson uh, have you ever heard of the 5g conspiracy theory no i haven't but i'd like to hear about it so the idea is that 5g causes a number of ailments to keep it simple for you let's say that a uh, 5g causes migraines now now that you know this information there are people that will sell a necklace that will protect you from the emf radiation that will harm you and so long as you wear this necklace you're safe. You don't have to worry about the electromagnetic frequencies. However, when I asked this person to show, you know, studies, they didn't have any. So it just, it's just a reminder of that, you know, the, the type of like pseudoscience that people are willing to sell. That's one of the hallmarks of pseudoscience is that people are making a lot of money off of it. And variations mm -hmm. of these 5G necklaces have been around for a long time. One of the ones is healing with crystals. Sad <laughs> to say, you can go on Google and type in LCSW, then space, crystals. And you will find LCSWs building into their social work practice crystals where they give clients crystals that are said to help with depression or anxiety or stuff like that. Crystals have been extensively tested. And the way they test them is they give somebody a necklace that's said to help alleviate depression. And they give them two versions of the necklace. One, mm -hmm. it's the real gemstone. 
semi-precious stone. Mm-hmm. And the other, it's it's a piece of gravel, but it's wrapped up <laughs> tightly. So the person doesn't know what they're wearing that day. And then they can toss a coin, ultimately wear one stone or another. And then after a couple of weeks, break the code and see if their depression was self-rated less on the days they had the real gemstone versus the piece of gravel. And when studies like this have been done, shows no difference at all. Same thing with copper bracelets. You wrap it up in, in ace bandages or something like that. One day you're wearing the copper bracelet, the next day you're wearing something else. No difference. Mm-hmm. So it's very easy to test um, pseudoscientific scientific treatments at the level of just the individual client, mm-hmm. as well as through more traditional methods like randomized experiments, which have also been done. Mm. If you'll permit me, I know of one social worker, she published an article on this where she did Reiki in her therapy. And Reiki, as you know, where the practitioner holds their hands by a client's body and supposedly detects invisible energy that surrounds their body. And the Mm. theory is that there are irregularities in energy flow that the Reiki practitioner can detect and then without touching the client, make motions like they're gathering the energy up or sweeping it away to restore the smooth flow of energy. This is what this LCSW was doing in a practice. Clients came in, they laid on a massage table, and the social worker stood by the table, held her hands over the client, and slowly shuffled around the table. And when she would find a supposed irregularity in energy flow, she would do Reiki sweeping motions or gathering motions, and then brush her hands as if she's getting rid of the bad energy. Well, this (laughs) social worker, to her credit, did a randomized experiment where she brought in clients. Half of them got real Reiki. The other half were blindfolded. And she did this with her own clients. And she stood by the table and over the course of the 45-minute session, shuffle around the table, but made no Reiki motions at all. (laughs) What she found out is the people who got real Reiki said they were much improved after real Reiki. But the people who got placebo Reiki, it reported Mm. just as much improvement. I'm not kidding. <laughs> I could provide you the reference for this paper that this LCSW published. And sad to say, a couple years later, she was still practicing Reiki with her clients. I consider that to be malpractice. And I hope I live to see the day a social worker who's exposed to a pseudoscientific treatment like Reiki um, doesn't get better or a condition for which there are research-supported treatments turns around and sues a social worker for malpractice, asking for a modest amount of money, not millions, this may be 10 grand or something like that, does not settle out of court and takes it to court and has the judge say, yes, social worker doing Reiki or healing with crystals or whatever it was, you were engaging malpractice and you are fine. Once that that precedent was established legally, that using these pseudoscientific therapies makes you vulnerable to malpractice claims, we mm-hmm. really see a reduction in their use. I'm pretty confident. Yeah. You know, I think our areas of interest do um, intersect to some degree because a, a prominent conspiracy theorist that sells um, pseudoscience pills is Alex Jones. I'm certain that you've heard of this individual. And the the amount of money that they make of these pseudoscience um products is just alarming and like you said it's it's just simple simple solutions to complex problems that are quite saddening to be honest with you and so i want to talk a little bit about the msw stance when it comes to homeopathy 
because I think this is where things get a little bit complex for individuals like us. So for the listeners, one of the, the um, models that we use when working with individuals is the biopsychosocial um, model. And what this entails is that when we look at the, the client, the patient, or you know, the participant, we not only view them based on their diagnosis, but we view them based on their socioeconomic status, their race, and their culture. And in culture is where things get a little bit murky because, Bruce, if you had a client, right, comes to your office with anxiety and you offer them, you know, your model of treatment and they say, I'm not feeling that. I, I like to do this homeopathy, this wh- whatever it might be, Reiki, crystals, whatever it might be, as a clinician, what would you do in that situation? Do you allow this individual to engage in their homeopathy belief or do you challenge it and try to correct them? Yeah, the biopsychosocial model you're talking about or also the person environment perspective is very important in our field. If somebody meets the DSM criteria for generalized anxiety disorder, let's say, you don't want to give them GAD treatment if you find out that they don't have a place to live, they don't have enough to eat, and they've got a medical condition and so forth and so on. It'd be silly to treat them for GAD without attending to the larger issues impacting their lives. I have actually had a client came to me with what the DSM would call obsessive compulsive disorder, repeated intrusive obsessional thoughts that really bothered her badly. And as a good clinician, I asked her, what do you think causes these? And she said, I think it's caused by demons. And I said, well, tell me more. And it turned out that she belonged to a a religious denomination that believed in demons and um, could be broadly labeled as Pentecostal or charismatic. And I said, well, how do you think this could be treated? And she said, I think I need exorcism. And I said, well, we don't do exorcism here in the anxiety disorders program. Um, And I described what we did do. But um, if you would be willing to work with me using the treatments we provide, which are supported by scientific research, very happy to do that with you. But if that's unacceptable to you, could I serve as an information broker, so to speak, a very long traditional role of social workers and, and see if I can find a minister who's prepared to do exorcism with you? And she says, oh, yes, that would be so helpful. I've looked and looked and I couldn't find one. Well, I was living in Ann Arbor, Michigan at the time, and they have every kind of uh, religious figure you can possibly imagine there. And I found a Roman Catholic priest that did exorcisms. And this woman was Roman Catholic. Now, you don't typically think of Catholicism and Pentecostal and charismatic, but there is a subject group within within Catholicism to do that. So I I got a hold of Father so-and-so and and explained the situation, asked him if he was willing to meet with her. And he said, yes. So she came back to see me. She was delighted I found someone, and I arranged a three-way live meeting at the priest's home. And um, she explained her situation to the priest, and he said what he thought he could offer her, and I read her what I thought I could offer her. And I said, what would you like to do? And she said she wanted to work with Father so-and-so and get the exorcism. And I said, okay, I wish you well, um, but we'll still be there in the anxiety disorders program. And after a few months, you're still being troubled by your intrusive thoughts that are so upsetting. Let us know, and we can try and help you there. And that was squarely within 
the model of evidence-based practice, which values client preferences and values just as much as research evidence. Research does not trump what the client prefers. So I felt I was acting squarely within the model of evidence-based practice, although I saw this client before that model was particularly uh, articulated very well. So in the case of somebody who said, I want homeopathy, I could do a couple of things. One might be, I could say, well, let's do some investigating and see if there's good evidence to show that homeopathy can help people with your condition. And either the client could try and look it up on Wikipedia or something like that. The Wikipedia entry on homeopathy, by the way, is very good and completely destroys it. Uh, or I say, I could try and find some research evidence. And what I'd probably find if I found something at all, it'd be evidence that shows it doesn't work. And I could share it with them and see if it has any uh, effort at nudging them in the direction of something that would be more scientifically based. Or I might take the approach, well, let's let's see if homeopathy works with you. Go ahead and get the bottle of homeopathic pills. And what I'd like you to do is every day fill out this measure or whatever is troubling you anxiety, depression, obsessions, whatever. And there's lots of good measures out there that are simple, short, easy to administer, uh, reliable and valid and so forth. And let me put the pills in different bottles, label them bottle A and bottle B, and you go home and you toss a coin every day and you take its uh, bottle A pill if it's uh, the coin is heads up and you take bottle B pill if it comes up tails. And you come back in a couple of weeks and we look at your scores every day, and we see if the days you took the real homeopathic medicine had a positive effect on your problem, or if it had none. And if it does have a positive effect, well, great, you can continue taking your homeopathic medicine. But if it doesn't, then to me, that would indicate that whatever effect it has is primarily placebo, and you might be willing to try something that I can offer from a more scientific, legitimate, legitimate perspective. That is an approach. I could take two, respecting their beliefs and offering to help them demonstrate they're true or perhaps that they're not true. Either way, I think is legitimate. And that way, I'm not dismissing their points of view. I wouldn't just say homeopathic is bogus. It's based on <laughs> uh, principles that are completely fake. We know there's all kinds of evidence to show homeopathic doesn't work. I would, I would not be likely to do that any more than I would challenge somebody's religious beliefs. So I would try and be respectful to them. And if they wanted something that was really bizarre, I would I would refer them to somebody who provides that type of therapy. I'm I'm not going to go, for example, run out and buy metal Tibetan healing bowls where you take a mallet and rum it around the inside of the bowl to make a tone. Oh. And that's supposed to have antidepressant or anti-anxiety effects or something like that. I will not do that to clients. It's completely bogus and placebo, but social workers are doing it. That just brought me back. I remember uh, I did see that um, they were selling it on Instagram for for four hundred dollars. And just like you said, you got like a stick and you just spin it around the bowl and the frequencies, you know, um, help you fight off the COVID-19, which was not real due to the person's uh, selling it. But yet you needed the bowl to protect yourself from the thing that they said wasn't real. But, you know. And, and they dress it up with pseudoscientific language. It's got to do with the vibrations, the energy mm -hmm. counteracts, the, the negativity that's causing your depression or whatever. And uh, I, I have my limits. I'd say, okay, well, you can get Tibetan healing bowls without me. Uh, go ahead and try them out. And if they work, that's great. Let me know. But if they don't work for you, we'll still be here. 
and available to help you out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's a that's a great way. That was, that was really my question because I've always had that trouble of like when people just start promoting homeopathy, what do I do? Is it my ethical obligation to correct them at the moment? Because some homeopathy can cost you your life. I mean, Steve Jobs is a perfect example of that. For those who, who aren't aware, Steve Jobs, um, to make this quick, was diagnosed with cancer. And initially, he was offered um, chemotherapy, but decided not to because he wanted to do a naturalistic approach. Long story short, um, it didn't work. And when he wanted to do chemo, it was too late. And so, Bruce, in that situation, when someone has like cancer, would you go with the approach that you used or would you try to be a little bit more persistent because of the condition of cancer? I would inform them of the evidence about what their proposed course of action has. And I would make a legitimate good faith effort to find out truthful information and I would share it with the client. But in my realm of anxiety disorders, it's not typically as life-threatening as would be a diagnosis of cancer. But I have a close family member that had a form of ovarian cancer, and um, uh, she had surgery to remove it, and then they wanted to do chemo. And she read about the effects of the chemo, and it was pretty ugly. Um, and she has opted not to do that. And, and instead, um, she's using healthy diet, vegan, very clean, which, by the way, is, is very healthy. It's good for you. You can be completely healthy with a vegan diet and eliminating meat and dairy and things like that. And, and more power to the family member. Um, maybe if the cancer should recur, she'd be more amenable to a more traditional approach. But as of now, she's gone on for three or four years and doing really well without the chemo. And I'm very happy about that. And um, it's really not for me to say what you're doing is stupid. Yeah, it's an interesting perspective when talking about homeopathy and how it can affect someone. And I think, yeah, I, I agree with your with your approach. B. Let me, let me let me go back to what you were talking about. The poor student sitting in your class at Rutgers, which is being replicated to several hundred MSW programs and BSW programs around the nation. Students should be strongly encouraged to always raise their hand with a bright smile, say, Dr. So-and-so, Professor So-and-so, can you please point to me any well-controlled outcome studies that show that this therapy you've been teaching us really helps people? Now, the professor can have several reactions. The best reaction is say, yes, and here they are. And either that class or in the next class, provide links to positive outcome studies that are well-controlled that show, yes, indeed, this therapy really, really does work. If professor doesn't know, he or she can honestly say, you know, I don't know the answer to that. I will find out and I'll get back to you. And a week or so later, they do get back to you. What would be intellectually insulting would be the professor to say, how dare you ask me that question? I'm the instructor in this class. I am the authority. I've had X years of experience. I know this works. Do not challenge me on this. That's being very disrespectful of the Mm -hmm. student's genuine intellectual curiosity. So you want to ask about the underlying theory. Is it truthful? And then you want to ask, and this is a separate question, is the therapy work? Because sometimes therapies are based on incorrect theory, but they work well. And sometimes theories are truthful, but they don't yield effective 
therapies. A good example would be um, the eye movement and desens eye movement um, desensitization and reprocessing therapy (EMDR). When it was originally proposed some 30 years or so ago, um, the students who would go through the training, which was very expensive, were taught about the crucial importance of having the therapist move their hand back and forth in front of the client while the client thinks of a traumatic event and track with their eyes the finger of the therapist moving back and forth. There's a very pseudoscientific explanation given for this that dealt with the hemispheric lateralization of the brain, one supposedly logical and one supposedly emotional and so forth. And they were cautioned early on, you've got to do it the right way, back and forth, back and forth. So there was a very elaborate theory that went into this and then the training of the technique itself. Later on, researchers investigated the eye movement theory and they've conclusively shown it's wrong. You can get the same effect by having eye move, have, having the eye movements go up and down, not back and mm -hmm. forth. You can get the same effect by having the client mimic tapping on the tabletop in one hand, right hand, left hand, back and forth, mimicking the therapist. You can get the same effect by having them hold uh, cylinders that vibrate alternately in the left hand or the right hand. So the original theory of EMDR is clearly wrong, but the therapeutic outcomes of EMDR are modestly effective. That's that's pretty true. Mm -hmm. And there's reasons why. It's probably because EMDR is basically, in my opinion, watered-down cognitive behavior therapy that involves prolonged <laughs> exposure to traumatic memories. But mm -hmm. we don't need to go down that route. I'm just using this as an example. EMDR works modestly well for a range of conditions. Mm -hmm. Has nothing to do with the legitimacy of the theory, which is clearly false. Yeah, you know, go, going back to you know the the example that you gave of you know raising your hand. I think in my case, uh, or in anyone's case, really, it's it goes back to my other classmates and my other colleagues that, to some degree, believe that there's some legitimacy to homeopathy. And I could recall just. I didn't want to be that person. I didn't want to be, oh, here we go again, you know, Nelson promoting his Western dominant uh, traditions of what medicine or what treatment should be. And so I think that's a challenge for, for at least for me as a student, to put myself out there. Because again, I don't want to, I don't want to sound like these other cultures are inferior in their practice. Because much of um, homeopathy, I think, does come from culture. One of the papers that, like I said, I was writing on diabetes in the Indian culture, it is believed that if you eat bitter tasting food, that will lower um, your chances of getting diabetes and, and something of that sort. I, I'm not entirely uh, I'm sure of the, the logistics, but when I challenge that, people might interpret that as Oh, you're, you're you're just promoting big pharma. That's a big one in the conspiracy theory community, and so it's just, it's trying to not sound rude on other people's culture while trying to promote evidence-based practices. You want to pose your question not in a challenging way. Say, I'm really interested in learning about how eating certain foods helps diabetes. Mm -hmm. Can you point to me the scientific evidence that demonstrate this? That's a very legitimate question for a graduate mm -hmm. student at Rutgers University, mm -hmm. one of the great institutions of higher learning in America. You should feel that this is a safe space to ask questions like that. You're mm -hmm. not saying Indian medicine is bogus. Mm -hmm. You're not saying that at all. You say, I'd like to learn more. 
Mm-hmm. And the same thing, you mentioned homeopathy. Remember, homeopathy came to us from Western Europe. It's dominant. It's a very mm-hmm. dominant Western approach. It's not Eastern oh. at all. Look oh. up homeopathy on <laughs> Wikipedia, Nelson. You'll yeah. see what I'm talking about. Oh, thank you. I, I will definitely look into that. Yeah, I, I, I'm here thinking that homeopathy came from, like, you know, East Asia, you know, and stuff like that, you know. Something and- that does come to us from East Asia is this idea of the invisible energy field that's variously called prana or ki or chi and so forth. It's an energy field that so far science has not been able to detect. And I have a faculty <laughs> member here at my college at Florida State University, and she is a firm believer in healing with chi manipulation. Mm-hmm. And I was talking to her one day, and I won't disclose her name, but I said, mm-hmm. I'm really interested in learning about chi. Can you tell me, is there good scientific evidence that it exists? And she said, oh, yes, absolutely. And I said, well, what was it? And she said, I saw my chi master in Ann Arbor, Michigan, do things that were just miraculous. And I said, well, okay, but you and I know, this is a well-trained scientist, by the way, you and I know that anecdotes don't count as scientific evidence. They can be a good start, but by themselves, they prove nothing. What about a well-designed scientific study? Is there been one like that that demonstrates the existence of, of key or chi? Because, Nelson, if the energy doesn't exist, then the therapy can't possibly work. Mm-hmm. She said, oh, yes, there was. We did a randomized controlled trial in Ann Arbor that proved the existence of chi. And I said, that's wonderful. Can you show me where it's been published? And she said, well, the person who was the data manager for the project quit. And she left and took all the data so the paper never got published. Now, Mm -hmm. I asked her, give me the best evidence you've got. So she came up with her personal anecdote and an unpublished paper that never saw print. Another example of this is one time in class, I said, To my knowledge, there's no evidence that hypnotism is good for any condition that social workers deal with. And students raised their hand avidly and they were saying, oh, but Dr. X in our class on practice is saying hypnotism is really good. And he's a licensed hypnotist and he does practice with hypnotism and so forth. And I knew Dr. X. And I said to the students, tell Dr. X what I said in class and invite him to give me the best outcome study he possibly can showing the benefits of hypnotism. That's a fair thing. I'm open-minded. I'm willing to learn. So there two later, Dr. X came to me with a big grin, waving a paper. And he said, here, here's a really good study proving that hypnotism works. So I read it. And it was a randomized controlled trial where the clients were randomly assigned to two conditions for pain. One group got cognitive behavior therapy for pain, been around for a long time, seems to work reasonably well. The other group got the same CBT protocol, but they also had hypnotism added to the CBT. And at the end of the study, it was shown that the group who got CBT plus hypnotism reported greater pain reductions than the group that got CBT alone. Okay, so Dr. X thought this is really good evidence. So I read the paper carefully, and it wasn't clear to me who did the therapy. So I called, I emailed the author of the manuscript, and I said, it wasn't clear. Who did the therapy? And could you tell me? And to his credit, he got back to me right away, and he said, you put your finger on a real problem. I did the treatment for both groups. And this Mm -hmm. man had a long history of writing positively about the value of hypnotism. So there's the possibility of therapist allegiance present 
that could contaminate the results of the study. It would be better for somebody else to have done the therapy, somebody else to have done the assessments of pain, somebody else to have done the statistical analysis, whereas he just designs it, other people carry it out to try and reduce bias in the study. So I went back to Dr. X and I told him what I found that the author of the paper that Dr. X was so proud about and his face sort of fell and he says, you're right, that's a serious problem. And he never got back to me with a better study showing the value of hypnotism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's, there's two things to that. You know, one that in, in the same way that, you know, in conspiracy theories, there's um, a lot of academics believe in them. There's a lot of uh, intelligent scholars that to some degree believe in some pseudoscience, you know, practice. My professor that I was um, referring to earlier, very, very knowledgeable about, you know, the topics of health. Like she can tell you about, you know, cancer, diabetes, liver disease, anything. And it's very informative. But at the same time, it's like, oh, you know, there's the pseudoscience aspect to it. And the the second thing is to, for the listeners to remember, just because, you know, there's a study out there doesn't mean that it's automatically true you have to look at the methodology and you know how things were done and that's very important in in the social sciences and so you know two two great examples that that you illustrate there and another point to remember is as the great scientist carl sagan said the more unusual the claim the greater amount of evidence that we need to Mm -hmm. before we want to accept the claim david hume in the 1600s wrote about this about Mm -hmm how he'd really have to see God's good solid evidence that a man actually rose from the dead mm-hmm. before he would accept the, somebody else's word for it happening. So there's that. And also not just one good solid study. We like to see replication of an unusual finding. So mm-hmm. if something showed that homeopathy did work, we'd like to see, has that been effect them? Has that effect been demonstrated by a, a second group of independent researchers? And that's like the FDA requires several studies with a positive result before they will approve a, um, a medicine for use with people as being effective. Homeopathy pills, dietary supplements, things like that, because they don't claim any effect on particular diseases, um, don't have to pass that test. Mm-hmm. And that's why you'll always see the little note on the bottle saying this drug is not being claimed to be effective to treat any particular disease. And that's how they circumvent the FDA. Yeah. My last question to you is about your own personal mental health. You know, as a student that studies conspiracy theories, uh, when I study them, uh, it can be pretty taxing. Um, Do you feel the same way when you look into pseudoscience claims? Do you get like Oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Just exhausted by the amount of academic scholars and programs that promote pseudoscience. Like, how, how do you how do you just not get overburned by such claims? Well, it's like playing whack-a-mole. You know, for everyone that is suppressed, um, you know, more pop up, and mm-hmm. it can be exhausting. But you know, I I keep focused on the successes. I just finished writing a book called Experimental Research Designs in Social Work, Theory and Applications. And what I have found, Nelson, going back to the early 1940s, I found over 1,000 randomized experiments authored by social workers in a wide variety of health conditions, mental health, community practice, and international development. Good, strong, solid studies, over a 1,000 of them. And this sort of 
pushes back against the common point of view that experimental research is rare in social work or hard to do or somehow unethical. There's nothing unethical about using, uh, comparing an experimental treatment to treatment as usual, for example. There have been many positive examples um, demonstrating that some things do work and some things do not. So there's a lot of good stuff out there. In terms of conspiracy theories, you know, election was thrown, QAnon, Satanists selection, um, molesting children, things like that. I see all the red flags. I just ignore them. You can't run around chasing stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. Although I see it's your job with your podcast, which I think is really <laughs> great. Um, so I, I just continue on. Um, and it's been in many ways a lot of fun. And I've had great doctoral students over the years who have gone on to do much better than I have in many other areas. And um, uh, it's it's been a pleasure to be involved in the field of social work for over 40 years. And I hopefully have a few more years left. Yeah. You know, uh, man, it's it's an honor to, to have you on the podcast and to have, you know, a fellow social worker to have this conversation about pseudoscience. And so, again, I, I thank you so much for your time and the information that you've provided for not only me, but the listeners and other mental health practitioners that might also be uh, in the same position that I am. And so, again, you know, from everyone, thank you for your years of dedication to the field of social work and your challenge against pseudoscience practices. Before we um, conclude, do you just want to give the title of your, um, your article and the book that you've written? The one that on pseudoscience? Yeah, the book will be out fall of 2023. It's called Experimental Research Designs in Social Work, colon, Theory and Practice. And it's being published by Columbia University Press, one of the best publishers in the country. And about five or six years ago, I published another book called Science and Pseudoscience in Social Work Practice. It was co-authored with one of my doctoral students, Monica Pignati, and that's uh, published by Springer. And that's easy to find on Amazon or, or just Google it. You'll find lots of copies available there. Thank All you. Right. No problem. Well, Bruce, it was great having you on. And I hope to you know hear more from you on your work. Thank you, Nelson, for asking me. No problem. All right, everyone. Take care. Hi there. I hope you found this episode informative. For more information about Bruce Dyer's work, I will leave a link to his Florida State University page where you can engage with his other research articles, as well as a link to his social work book on pseudoscience practices, which can be found on Amazon. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, click on that subscribe button and leave me a five-star review. By doing so, you'll help expose this podcast to people who might be interested in conspiracy theories within politics. If you're listening on any other platform, make sure to follow for more analysis on the conspiratorial mindset. You can follow me on Facebook and on Instagram at The Social Chemist. If possible, share this podcast with your friends to have some interesting discussions about today's episode, and I'm sure there'll be plenty to discuss. As mentioned earlier for sources, you can find all the references on the show notes below. And so with that being said, take care and good luck with your assignment and question everything with logic.